Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. Later on in the show, we'll learn about a major environmental project in Florida that seeks to restore fresh water flows to the Everglades. The project is backed in part by the Orvis Company of fly fishing fame, and we'll talk to Orvis President Simon Perkins about it. But first, we're joined by Claire Fiesler to talk about a new National Geographic kids book she co-authored with Gabby Salazar titled No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice. Fiesler is the rare combination of scientist and journalist and is currently the Sandra Day O'Connor Fellow for the Smithsonian Institution. Claire recently joined us with a special guest, Kakani Khadija, from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. I'm a huge fan of her book and asked her about the National Geographic connection to young readers. It's from National Geographic Kids Books. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's its own separate division from the magazine. A couple of the the map, the folks from National Geographic Kids Magazine who works on maps helped with the maps for our books, but um, they're, they're somewhat separate, but it's from, you know, National Geographic Kids Books. They've been making kids books for over, you know, 75 years. And so we were so thrilled to work with them, myself, and also my co-author, uh, Gabby Salazar. So let's start out with the book. What was the impetus behind this? What made you and Gabby decide you wanted to do this? Because Gabby's like your photographer, right? Uh, she's she's actually the co-author. We both wrote okay. it. Uh, we're both photographers and writers. So you and- both did photography and writing in it. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And before the book, we actually had made a short documentary about a woman scientist, which that was kind of like the the initial seed project for this book. And, you know, there's a, there's a longer backstory here. I don't know if you want the short version I, I or want the long longer, version. Go with the longer backstory. Okay, okay, okay. Longer version is that um, I am a National Geographic explorer, and so is Kakani. And that means that National Geographic funds our scientific research, as well as my work in journalism. Um, and after I got my first National Geographic grant, it was a Young Explorers grant. So it's for people under the age of 25. And I was like, it was my very first grant. And I was so thrilled to be part of the organization. And I just remember that year going through a National Geographic magazine. And it was a magazine heavily focused on a scientific topic, which was bringing species back from extinction. So like after something goes extinct, can you use biotechnology to bring it back? Like, you know, um, the the woolly mammoth. And I was going through the magazine and I just was like, wow, there are a lot of men in here (laughs) and a lot of white men. And I just started counting the amount of times women versus men were, were kind of quoted as, as sources, as scientific experts in the magazine. And then I started quoting how the, how many appeared in the photographs. And I think there were, for the entire magazine, there was like 38 experts and only two were women. And I remember thinking like, whoa, okay, I knew this was a problem, but the numbers are really hitting me now. And so I took this idea to some of the other young explorers. So some of the other young people I met at this, you know, kind of big um, conference at National Geographic for kind of young grantees. I mentioned this and I started informally recruiting people to go through and code magazines. And we coded all these magazines uh, across the span of like three years. And uh, this was going back to 2012 to 2015. And we found that of over like 1200 experts that were quoted, you know, less than 19% were women across those three years in National Geographic Magazine. 
And the only magazine I could find <laughs> that there was a balance of men and women uh, quoted and kind of sources experts was a was an issue all about kids, <laughs> about oh, babies. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh. Wow. And 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 it wasn't just the numbers. And the last thing I'll say is that there was like a nuance here of just when there was a woman described, she was often described by her kind of visual characteristics. I remember reading uh, uh, an article, you know, published within the last 10 years at National Geographic about Jane Goodall. And the opening line for the profile was, you know, the blonde ponytail has gone gray. And that was the opening line. So oh, it was wow. about her aging and not her scientific achievements. And this is Jane Goodall, the, the yeah. most famous scientist in the world, probably living scientist. And you would never um, see that about a, a male scientist. Right. I mean, you right. might, I, you know, not in the opening line anyway, probably. Right. And not in the opening, the yeah. opening line, because she was known for being a young, attractive scientist. And so what they're saying is like, oh, well, hey, she's still a scientist, but look, she's no longer attractive. She's getting old. And um, such a disrespect to the world's most famous living scientists. You know, how, how, am, how am I going to be treated as a young scientist? And that and that's something I started thinking about. So I took these numbers and I presented them to the then editor-in-chief, Susan Goldberg of the magazine. And she said, thank you very much. Uh, never really contacted me again. We'll try to do better. And to their credit, they started to do better. Um, but it, for us, it wasn't enough. And so we went to the grant-making side of the organization and said like, hey, and it was myself and um, this woman, Gabby Salazar, who became really interested in coding the magazines too, another grantee. And we said, we want to do a project. And so we first conceptualized this we first conceptualized a project of making, you know, a series of uh, web videos profiling women scientists. And we got a grant to do one. And we went to Zimbabwe for three weeks and we profiled uh, this amazing woman who collared that really famous lion, Cecil the lion, who was shot by the dentist, that American dentist. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that story? Yes, I do. That was awful. American yeah, he shot, illegally shot the world's most famous lion. And the woman, the scientist who had collared that lion and was studying him was was this woman, and she was she was fascinating. So we profiled her, and that that short documentary made um, it won a lot of awards. And then we brought it to National Geographic, and they said, "Hey, look, we're not doing web series anymore, but we we do have a long legacy of making children's books, and can this be a children's book?" and at first I said, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> and and it was really my co-author who said, look, if, if we want to make an impact, it's really got to be with the younger generation. And so we made this book and we really tried to focus on women who were early career, like Kakani, who are you know under the age of 40. Uh, we sourced like women from all over the world doing all different sorts of jobs and who are really kind of like, you know, still striving to get to the top and kind of showing failure and persistence. And and that's the backstory of this book. And I think that's what distinguishes it from other books about women scientists for kids is that instead of profiling, you know, women who have made it, we're profiling women who are, who are kind of still rising. On the cusp. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why I loved making this book. Well, um, one of the things that I liked about this book is that it, it is something that would be great to put in the hands of a young person. Uh, what age group did you have in mind for this? We really had the age group of of middle schoolers, um, uh, because you know, once uh, there's all this research that shows that once kids get to high school, that's where they deviate away from STEM. Well, yeah. And also their thoughts about themselves have already started to 
solidified mm-hmm. of you know what they're what they're capable of what other people think they're capable of um and so to really counter that molding you really have to go farther back in age and i really think it's this time of this middle school i mean it's written for you know a kid in second grade can pick it up and i think enjoy it oh, sure. we really wrote it for that age group of maybe like you know fourth fifth sixth seventh and eighth to reach kids before they kind of get to high school yeah well one of the things that i really like about it is and I think this goes back to this bigger problem is little girls and boy, everybody, all children are interested generally in nature as a child and curious. You know, they have that inner scientist going and they ask all those questions that drive, you know, drive us crazy as adults. But, the, you know, that's them investigating their world. And if you can instill in, in a child a love of nature you have a chance of having a scientist later on. You know, I think that the love of nature is something that goes through all of the people that are profiled in this book. Would would you say that's kind of a fair commentary? I think so. Yeah, I think they all, and we tried to ask that as well. We asked every single woman in this book, what were you like as a kid and what did you want to be as a kid? And they all you know, no one said, oh, I, I knew I wanted to be a geologist because I picked up a rock on the beach at six years old and bam, I knew geologist for me. But they all were curious about the natural world. I don't know, Kakani, what about you? I, I mean, I was, you just said that word. I think curiosity is is really important for all of the women I think that were um, highlighted in this book, but also just in general. I think children are filled with so much curiosity about the world around them. How does things, how do things work? Etc. And I think scientists are largely people who never really stop asking those questions, so those kinds of questions. And so um, I think curiosity about anything is is perhaps a mechanism for people to continue in the, in down this pathway. And Kakani, weren't you originally kind of interested in in more of an aerospace engineering type career? And tell us about how that evolved from being interested in that to deciding that you wanted to explore the oceans. Well, I mean, that is true. Uh, I think my starting point was really just wanting to, or being inspired by, you know, Star Trek reruns on TV that I used to watch with my dad um, Uh almost every day. Right. And I, it's the original Star Trek, right. Where you have Mm -hmm. the, the, the crew looking for life in other places and interacting with it. Right. And um, in my mind, that's, it's, the astronauts are the kind of real life equivalent of that group. And so I, I went into that area, um, you know, hoping to one day become an astronaut, but then that transition, you know, exploring the stars versus exploring our planet, it's, it's actually not very hard to do. Um, and in my mind, there are plenty of, um, you know, opportunities to continue that work here on this planet. Uh, and, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm now, you know, at an institution that focuses on ocean, ocean exploration and discovery. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. How, how did you come to be at um, the Monterey, and let's, let's make this distinction, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute is, is separate from the aquarium. Um, it, it is at Moss Landing, whereas the aquarium's in Monterey. And it's, it does this amazing uh, oceanographic research and uh, marine biology. And you're, you're sitting at the, at the head of one of the most amazing structures in the ocean, the Monterey Canyon. That submarine canyon's amazing. How did you get to be there? 
I wish I could say it was planned, but I the first interaction I ever had with the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute or Mbari was during an internship visit when I was at NASA Ames uh, Research Lab uh, as part of the NASA Academy program after I finished my senior undergraduate year. Uh, and I'd never heard of Mbari. I had no idea what you know, anything about ocean exploration. And, and we had a visit, you know, to, to the Moss Landing site. And I remember seeing, you know, one of the facilities, it's our test tank facility, which is about, yeah. you know, 10 meters deep, full of seawater and robots everywhere. And I think thinking, oh, this is really interesting. And it wasn't another 10 years or so before I came back. Yeah, it looks like something right out of science fiction or Star Trek. Um, like, especially, you know, being in the control room on the, the Rachel Carson, the research vessel there, you know, it looks like it could be on Starship when you're, when you're sitting there. For sure. For sure. And I mean, there's a lot of overlap, right, between, um, you know, the, the concepts for space exploration or the terminology we use for space exploration and ocean exploration. Um, uh, so the communities, you know, have very similar goals, I, I'd say, but um, at least with the ocean, there's arguments that, you know, we know a lot less about the system than we do um, some atmospheres or some uh, planets or objects in outer space. One of the things I found interesting about your profile and you is that, and it kind of goes to a much bigger picture of what's going on in the sciences, you know, planetary sciences and environmental sciences, is this interweaving between engineering and science now because to do science you need engineering and engineering is like the way you get to do science they're kind of in they're they're woven together talk a bit about what you do like actually you know what your work is uh well so i am a well principal engineer at ambari and uh, where i leave lead the bioinspiration lab and the Bioinspiration Lab is a small group of engineers, biologists, uh, scientists, uh, where we sit around and think a lot about, you know, what kinds of tools or methodologies would be required to, you know, change approaches that researchers might be using in biology um, to answer important questions. Uh, of how animals survive or live in, in an environment that's really difficult to access, like, like the deep sea. Um, and, and it's actually part, you know, while I talk about our lab, um, the institution as a whole, right, was set up 30 years ago by, by David Packard as a bit of a, an experiment, right, of like what happens if you put engineers and scientists together and with a peer relationship um, you know, brainstorm on solutions for uh, ocean exploration and discovery. So um, really our lab is an extension of that. Um, and we focus on, you know, bringing imaging tools like state-of-the-art methods and imaging uh, to bear in, in the deep sea and, and look and actually reveal how life functions in, in completely new ways. Let's take a short break, but stay with us as we continue our conversation with National Geographic scientist and author Claire Fiesler and Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute bioengineer Kakani Katija as we talk about the new National Geographic book for kids, No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Blue Dot. 
And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with author Claire Fiesler and bioengineer Kakani Katija as we discuss the new kids' book, No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice. Yeah, let's talk about some of those imaging tools that you've helped to develop. Because um, when you go down into that submarine canyon, or your instruments do, it's very dark down there, and it's filled with all these amazing creatures like jellyfish and stuff like that. And, and they're difficult to study. Could you talk about you know, some of the tools that you've helped to develop to, to study them? We are really fortunate in that there's a lot of robotic technologies that we're piggybacking on that already exist here at Ambari. Uh, and so some of the things that we think about are like, what are additional tools or instruments we can add to those systems to either, you know, uh, reveal things differently or, you know, provide more flexibility um, or targeted sampling of animals we want to study. And so one of the imaging uh, imaging systems that we've developed uh, is called Deep PIV. It's a, a laser illumination system that allows us to see inside uh, and through gelatinous or mucus structures that you find quite a bit in the deep sea. Um, lots of animals are gelatinous, like jellies, um, and but also uh, some of these animals secrete structures that are made completely out of mucus. Um, you know, that they create. And so it's the DPIV instrument allows us to um, not only study how these animals move, but also the shape or the structure of these uh, objects. And, and we can create fully resolved three-dimensional models of these animals and structures uh, in the deep sea, you know, non-invasively uh, without changing their structure or having to remove them from the ocean. Uh, and so DPIV is an instrument we've been developing now for the past uh, five years. And that's just one of the many imaging systems that we've been uh, using in the lab. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating world down there. Yeah, you could spend, I'm sure, your entire professional career exploring the Monterey Submarine Canyon and just scratch the surface of what what is going on down there. It's just amazing. Uh, can you maybe describe for us the first time you got to really experience studying that? Right. It was 2017. <laughs> it was the first time I was able to go on a research cruise uh, with the with Mbari. And uh, at the time, the senior scientist that was on the cruise was Bruce Robeson. Uh, I don't know if you all have had a chance to speak with him, but he's- I have. Have you? Okay. Um, he is, has had this amazing career at Ambari and elsewhere. And if there's an underwater vehicle somewhere that requires someone to be in it, you know, Bruce has probably been in there piloting the thing. Um, and, you know, he'd seen this one group of animals that we were uh, starting to study called giant larvations uh, for 30 plus years in the Monterey Bay. What are they? Oh, so these are animals that are, we say that they're basal chordates. So if you think about the tree of life, um, before you reach us, uh, these larvations are, you know, a cousin to us. And what's interesting about these animals, they look like a tadpole, like um, a frog tadpole that never, ever transforms. And they secrete mucus uh, from cells lining their head to create much like blowing up a balloon, uh, a structure made completely out of snot 
uh, I like to call it a snot palace (laughs) 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 that they live inside and use as an elaborate filtration structure. So to separate food in the water um, that the animal is, you know, surrounded by. And it's these structures that play an important role with carbon cycling, with um, with nutrient cycling, et cetera. And, and when we started, you know, looking at these animals um, and then also using this new technology, we we knew very little about these animals. We we only had, you know, the traditional view of these animals, which is like white light, what's going on on the outside, seeing the animal beat its tail inside of its mucus house. Um, but we had so many questions that we were fortunate DPIV was able to answer. Yeah, I could, I could just see, you know, middle schoolers out there all over the place as soon as you tell them we're going to investigate a snot palace, you know, that <laughs> and they, would, they would, they would, uh, they would be down for that. Yeah. Me too. I just want to chime in here and say, like, I think the, you know, investigating the snot palace, the inside of the snot palace is really novel, right? And like really high impact. And, and this is something that that research has proved. There's a study came out just two weeks, or I think this summer, that shows that, you know, gender diverse teams are producing more novel and higher impact scientific ideas. And so one of the things I love about Kakani's work is that like, it's just so, it's not just about making more and more discoveries. It's about finding a way to use biology and engineering to make really unique discoveries and like, like looking inside a snot palace. And I think that is what we're seeing with diversity in STEM is by bringing more diversity, you have just like these novel solutions emerging and like, you're just a prime example of that. Yeah, the more the more different approaches and different kinds of people you bring to a problem, the more likely you're going to have, you know, complex solutions to complex problems. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's talk a bit about, um, you mentioned diversity. One of the things I loved about the 25 profiles in this book is it's such a diverse group of women. Uh, and they, you know, aren't all just, you know, what you would classically call scientists. They're adventurers. You've got a through hiker in here and environmental activist from Chad. How did you go about, you know, coming up with your 25? And That must have been difficult. It, it was. I, I'll tell you that story, but before I will do, I want to say one thing to Kakani before we like pivot is Kakani, I meant to tell you this, but um, a friend of mine who who bought the book has a eight-year-old daughter named Penny. And like, it was 10 p.m. at night, Penny had gone to bed and all of a sudden my friend here is like, mom, 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 come upstairs, quick, 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 come upstairs. And she thinks like something is wrong. I mean, there's like a spider in the room. <laughs> You know, and she goes into the room and she's like, what is it, Penny? What is it? She goes, mom, I want to be a bioengineer. And my friend texts me and she goes, what is a bioengineer? I didn't even know what that was, but apparently it was urgent enough to wake me up or like for her to like stay up late and, and, you know, just to learn what that is. You know, she didn't even know what it was before to learn a new word. And so I think you mentioned like diversity of, of these careers and, you know, yours is a prime example of we, everyone knows what a biologist is, but no one knows what a bioengineer is. And just showing a young kid what it is can implant in their brain, these dreams that are proliferating at 10 PM at night. (laughs) And uh, so I wanted to say that, but 
to answer your other question, Dave, about how we pick these women, um, a lot of it was just like a snowballing effect of I had prior to this project and prior to the video, the, the short documentary, I had done a project of making portraits of women scientists in North Carolina. And before I even like picked up a National Geographic book, I just, I thought it would be cool to to photograph women scientists. And that that project was featured in Grist and in National Geographic and like another big news org. Yeah, I think it's eight years ago at this point. And I just started getting emails from people being like, you should profile this person. You should profile this person. And so we just started following leads. And then we also just wanted to make sure that we had you know, women across the fields of science, working across the world, and also people who had started their careers at different stages of their life. I mean, we have a woman who's one of the world's, you know, leading expert in lemurs, you know, those kind of like, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, they're the crazy looking monkeys from Madagascar. Madagascar. Yeah, she, you know, she was a social worker for 15 years in Manhattan. And she kind of had this epiphany in her late 30s to go back to grad school and, and pursue primatology. Uh, we have a woman in there who is, opened a sea turtle hospital in her retirement. So she was in her 70s when she started her career. And she's on like multiple, you know, research papers about sea turtle rehabilitation now. Um, we have people, you know, I wanted parents to read it and be like, oh, it's not too late for me too, you know. And then the last thing is that we really wanted personal stories of uh, you know, different types of hurdles people had to overcome, uh, issues, whether we have a couple different profiles about motherhood. We have a great profile in there about uh, a woman who works on the Mars rovers. Right. And uh, her name is Dr. Sarah Stewart Johnson. She's also uh, an author. And she's the youngest person to have worked on all the Mars rovers. And she talks about the day that not perseverance, I forget what the previous rover was. When the rovers landed on Mars, all of her colleagues were at the NASA um, Jet Propulsion Lab celebrating popping champagne. And she says that she was, you know, taking her newborn son home from the hospital and thinking like, I can't be there. I have this new roommate to take care of, (laughs) you know? And, And really, she really struggled actually with motherhood. And then but then fast forward five years and she's taking her young son into the field and in, uh, into the extreme environments of uh, Iceland with her and making it work. And so, again, how do we pick these women? We wanted people across different fields and different parts of the world, but also different struggles to overcome. That was really important to us. Yeah. And if you look at the history of uh, just taking the Jet Propulsion Laboratory as an example, um, back when, you know, that place was just forming in the early age of the space exploration in the 1960s, late 50s, 60s, you know, if a woman were an engineer, a a mathematician, what they called them calculators back then, uh, and very much integral to the, the mission success, but if they happened to get pregnant they basically had had to quit they were asked you know to leave which is just you know it's like very sad to think about how many talented women um you know had to get deviated from their career path and a lot of them came back which is a wonderful story but it really is you know it's a challenge for every every parent to to have balance work and your career and your child mm-hmm mm-hmm and, you know, I think kids are thinking about that stuff already. I think we don't give kids enough credit. 
you know, oh, what is a 10 year old, you know, why does she need to understand the trials and tribulation of, of motherhood? But I'll tell you what, you know, my daughter's three and a half and she wants to be, well, she's been telling me for the past year, she wants to be a scientist. She wanted to be an ocean scientist. Then she wanted to be a bone scientist. Then she wanted to be a bug scientist. And then last week. I sense a theme here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was willing to bugs for a while. And then last week I said, um, someone asked her, what do you want to be And she, when you grow up? And she says, I don't want to be anything. I want to stay home with my kids. Oh. And it's going to change next week. You sure. know, it's going to, we're going to be back. But interesting else. that at that age, she would be thinking. She's about already that. thinking about that, you know, and I think young people are, you know, maybe I want to be a mom. Maybe I want to be uh, a race car driver. And also this other thing. Can I do both? And how, I mean, Kakani, you can talk about this, but you were, uh, you were, you know, an athlete. Um, you were a professional uh, or near professional ice skater. Um, so you a long had, time ago. Yeah, but you you <laughs> had these two passions in your life, and I think that's impressive. But I do think that's an important point you made, Clara. Is that you know, at some point, we really need to get to where people can be what or who they want to be, regardless of you know what what is defined for them or, you know, like getting away from these prescribed roles that we seemingly must have, or, you know, have, have been set up by, you know, our, our culture, because I think frankly, really we, we do better when we're pursuing our passions and, and doing things that excites us and, and trying to move away from these, you know, gender roles, for example, uh, would, would really benefit a lot of us. Yeah, because you never hear a conversation, of, you know, about a little boy saying he wants to grow up to be whatever a scientist, and then and then it's like, well, you know, but you might want to be a dad too. So I don't know. You know, you don't hear <laughs> you don't hear that. Right, right. Well, aside from putting this wonderful book in a child's hands, um, any advice that either one of you would like to give to you know parents out there that have an inquisitive child? that you want, they want to make sure that they keep being encouraged so they don't get turned away from what could be a, a career that they really love? Yeah. I mean, I think if I, was, if I were to sum up my book in one word is it's persistence. I'm a scientist and a journalist, and I've met so many talented people like rising through the ranks. And, you know, you know, talent is a dime a dozen, but persistence is rare. And I think it's it's easy to be deterred. And every single one of the women in this book uh, was just incredibly persistent in what they're doing. And, you know, maybe they weren't the straight A student in high school or they weren't the math whiz, but they're they're doing things with, with math and with, you know, instrumentation and exploration that no one else has because, because of persistence. And so I think that that's the number one advice I, I really give to kids and to parents is to try to instill in them a, a sense of, of to, to persist despite hurdles that, which will invariably, you know, crop up because, you know, the system is still stacked against them. That, that is changing, but it is still stacked against young girls. Mm -hmm. um, and so instilling them the, the persistence and wherewithal to, to overcome those is, is, is my recommendation as a parent. What, what advice do you have, Kakani? I'm curious. This is a tough one because I could go on for a very long time. Um, we, we, we're a long format show. You can go on. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think there's a couple things. I know we focused a lot on on women today. Um, there's also obviously um, a lot of 
challenges when we're talking about uh, other demographics as well. And I think, you know, it's easy. It's not easy. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to be persistent if you haven't experienced failure before. Um, but it's another thing to get access or to have exposure to things. Um, and so I, I feel, you know, I feel for parents, there's <laughs> a lot of resources out there. Um, but, but really, I, you know, I think trying to expose, you know, your, your children to as many things as possible is, is, is huge. Um, because there are so many opportunities, there are so many different pathways that one can take. Um, like, you know, I didn't get to go to an aquarium until I was, uh, in undergraduate. Really? Right. And, you know, not saying that my pathway would be any different, but I, you know, thinking about that exposure would be immense. And like, I did a lot of, um, when I was in graduate school in Pasadena, I did a lot of uh, volunteer work with the uh, boys and girls clubs in uh, North Pasadena. And, and then I also did some volunteer work with uh, the, the um, LA County lifeguards. And, you know, there's children in East LA who have never seen the ocean yeah. before. So sad. Right. And so, so that is a, that's a very, very difficult challenge that I think access and exposure can hopefully, um, you know, change or improve uh, the situation there. Yeah. It's amazing to think of their proximity to the ocean compared to so many people. And yet they've never been able to go there because of, you know, it's a long story of, you know, that, that deck being stacked against keeping them away from those, those beaches. Right. Um, but I will say, I think something that really served me, served me well, and I don't know if we talk enough about this, um, is that it's one thing to receive mentorship or to seek mentors, you know, people who might be in fields or doing things that you are really, really interested in, but it's another thing to nurture those mentoring relationships or, you know, as a mentee seeking help, like how do you interact with people who might have information or life experience or networks that can help make, um, help you make connections with other people doing the things you would love to do. Um, and so, you know, focusing on mentorships, focusing on those relationships with other people, I think is very, very important to help get access and exposure. Yes, because so many stories of people's success has that there, there's a relationship or several the, along the way, those supportive relationships that lead to, you know, ultimately people being able to pursue their dreams. Right, right. And you know, I, I, I'm going to have to mention, um, because I feel obligated to one of the wonderful women in our book, Dr. Danielle Lee, to mention it since she can't be on, on with, here with us. But there's a whole other component here that touches on what Kakani says that is not about the individual and it's about the system. And the book really focuses on women who, you know, be, you know are beating the odds and being persistent, who are getting mentorship. And there's a sense of like, oh, these women can pull themselves up from their bootstraps. And, and there are people who are doing that. But, you know, there's all, there also have to be changes to be made. And the only way to do that is to speak out. And Danielle Lee, who's profiled in our book, she's a great example of a scientist who's trying to make academia uh, better for, um, for Black scientists. And 
if I were to write another a sequel to this book, I think it wouldn't be, you know, we've already written no boundaries, but I think the sequel would be called Not Silent. Uh, the examples of so many scientists who are speaking out to change the system. Because, you know, first we need the individuals to have the strength, the courage, the confidence, and the persistence to do it. But we also need to bring down the barriers once and for all. And so there's only so much an individual's effort can take them. You know, how There's only so far an individual's effort can take them. And I think it's really up to, you know, us as a community of scientists um, to to speak out. And there are people doing that that I would love to profile. Um, so, you know, it's important to say that too. Well, Kakani and Clara, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this wonderful book and, and your work. Kakani, it was just, it was really fun to talk to you both. It was lovely to talk to you. And and, and Kakani, can we get like Snot Palace t-shirts made or something? Yeah, I uh, I'll buy one for sure. <laughs> We're on it. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks to our guests, National Geographic scientist, explorer, and journalist Claire Feastler and Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute bioengineer Kakani Katija. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll learn about a massive environmental project underway in Florida that seeks to return natural flows of fresh water to the Everglades. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Now let's hear about an environmental project in Florida that seeks to restore water flows to the Everglades. I learned about this after watching a film titled Follow the Water that was produced by the Orvis Company. And we're joined now by the president of Orvis, Simon Perkins. Simon, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great, to, great to be here with you. It's very nice to have you. And before we go any further... I want to point out that this is a family-owned company for a very long time. Could you just kind of briefly place yourself in that timeline for us? Place myself in that timeline. Yeah, it's it's very cool in the way that, um, I mean, Orvis was started back in the 1850s. It was started by a guy named Charles F. Orvis. And I often just have fun thinking about Orvis, the company, as a as a startup back then. Um, yeah. He loved to fish. Actually, there's a there's a quote that he has that I, I keep on my desk. I have it right here in front of me. And it, it says, more than half the intense enjoyment of fly fishing is derived from the beautiful surroundings, the satisfaction felt from being in the open air, the new lease of life secured thereby, and the many, many pleasant recollections of all one has seen, heard, and done. So basically, fly fishing was his passion. It made him happy made him health, healthy. He he wanted to share that with others. And and so Orvis was really born as kind of a, a purpose-led company. He, he wanted to want to make these fly rods get in the hands of others so that they could have the same enjoyment in life. And and my grandfather bought the company in the 1960s when it was a small operation and it was an ideal fit for him and his his deep passion for fly fishing in the outdoors. He's he's someone who in his 90s would log over 250 days a year fly fishing or bird hunting which which i'm hoping i can physically do that next year let alone in my 90s but that that passion has been the foundation for the for the company through generations is very much what drove my father and my uncle when they they took over the company in the 90s and it's what 
So what drives those of us in the third generation, me, my brother, my cousin who, who are involved, and it's what we, what we love to do. And we're incredibly lucky to have the, have the best job in the world where I can spend every day working for a brand that's a leader in a space that I, I live for on a personal level. And, and you, know, you, mentioned, you mentioned family company, and you know, I, it's something that is, you know, I remind myself every day, it's really important not to take for granted the fact that you know, as a family company, we can, we can take this long-term view We're we're invested in the long-term. And so, you know, we, we can't help but think how to make sure the sport is thriving 10 to 20 years from now, whether that's a, our commitment to making great gear or to conservation, because at the end of the day, I want, I want my kids and others in future generations to be able to live this, this passion the same way that I did. So, you know, our, our customers are just like us and it's it's meaningful to have the type of responsibility we do to to customers and to the sport because we know what the sport means to people in their lives. And it's humbling to play a role to continue to help ensure the, the future of fly fishing and the outdoor pursuits that we love. Yeah. And one of the main reasons I invited you on is to talk about a documentary that I saw from Orvis called Follow the Water that you and your cousin Hannah um, were a big part of. And it's about the restoration of the Everglades, one of the greatest ecosystems on the planet. And I was really unaware of what the problems were in the Everglades, being a person from the West Coast. But it was very interesting. Could you could you just give us an overview of what the problem is in the Everglades as far as not getting the fresh water that it needs? Yeah. Well, and thanks for checking out the short film. It was a really fun and and on a personal level, really meaningful to put it together. But basically, what what you have is, I mean, I'll, I'll put it in its simplest terms. You you have over years and years and years, you have Army Corps of Engineers and you have humans basically turning this incredible vast ecosystem with tons of water, basically trying to turn it into the most efficient form possible for humans. And, and the engineering feats they did were absolutely incredible. The problem is that uh, that's not that wasn't sustainable for um, not only the 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 ecosystem that relied on it but for tons of things that humans relied on it as well and and it was it was interesting it it was only it was in the years following the 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 engineering feats that redirected this water into very specific ways where they started feeling the impact it wasn't like it was 10 20 years later they started feeling it immediately and um people started raising red flags and and uh and so ever since it's been trying to figure out all the, the, the effort the money and everything that needs to go into basically re- returning this incredible huge vast system back to its natural form because that's not only that's going to be best for not only the natural world but also humans and and both to coexist together well one of the one of the major themes of this program is that if it's good for the natural world in the long term it's also good for human beings yeah, it's it's incredible how often we get reminded of that lesson. But it's it it's true. I mean, that what's what's amazing about the Everglades is yes, it's it's incredibly biodiverse in the way that this you have a, you have a two hundred forty mile flow of water that's that supports over two thousand species. So you know, as far as a natural resource is concerned, it it is a it's a national treasure. It, it's also pivotal to supporting a. $33 billion outdoor recreation economy in Florida. It provides 9 million people in South Florida with drinking water. It's 
It's home to 3 million acres of climate impact mitigation in the form of carbon sequestration. Um, it's, it's, it's one of these, these things that, you know, we need to rely on it. And it in its natural form is, is not only provides basically the veins for supporting um, businesses and economy, but also these sports and these passions that so much of us have fallen in love with. And can you maybe geographically take us through this system? Because I was, like I said, I was unaware of how it all worked. The the water that, the fresh water that the Everglades gets comes far from the north, from a, a, a creek. Shing, is it Shingle Creek? Shingle Creek, yep. Yeah, yeah could you kind of take us through the, the, the hydrologic system from Shingle Creek to the Everglades and kind of explain how the problems that come up along the way due to our human engineering interference? Yeah, um, absolutely. And this this was what was so cool about making this short film is that um, I, I know tons of people that get to spend, whether they're scientists or whether they're guides, um, they spend tons of time in the Everglades system, but very few of them have traveled the entire system. And so it was, it was fun talking to people who who you know were jealous because of the opportunity that, that, that we got to do this when we were making this film. But it starts in this tiny creek and this water flow up near Orlando. And then it flows south into uh, the Kissimmee River, which is this area of water that was basically made. I mean, you, you can look at, at the old pathway of the water, which was just made into this straight, really efficient line. It's um, very linear. Very, very, very linear. Yep. And rivers, especially rivers that flow through regions that don't have a lot of topography, and Florida is pretty flat, they tend to oxbow back and forth naturally and meander. And this this thing was just engineered to go straight. Exactly. It was engineered to go straight. And what's cool is this is one of the first places where they started the restoration of the Florida Everglades, which which happens to be the, the, the biggest restoration effort ever in the the history of our planet, which is pretty cool. This was one of the first places where they did it. And so what you can, there are these aerial views that you can see of, of that old, very, very linear channel, like you said, and then this, where they started to bring it back to its, its natural pathway, which is there. It's not like they had to recreate it, that, that it was still there. So they could basically return it to its original form. And with those ox, oxbows, like you said, not only do you have the flow of water, but you have this ability for the water to, to flood and to, to just to provide life to this incredible marsh ecosystem. And it was fun being there and talking to the scientists because they said, listen, you know, when, you, you can tell when this thing's working because the birds, the waterfowl, they return instantly and then everything else follows. And they talked about how they, they disappeared immediately when they had made that channel and they reappeared immediately when they had fixed it. So that was pretty cool. Um, anyway, then the water flows out of the river into Lake Okeechobee, which is which is huge. It's it's. I mean, you you you. When you pull up to it, you're confused as to whether or not you're staring at the ocean or or lake. It's 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 vast. And what was interesting about Lake Okeechobee back in its original form is is in its natural form, it was made so that um, during certain times of year. In the wet wet times of year, it would flood, and this it, it would this the sheet of water would spill over its southern banks, and it would start to flow down throughout the entire Everglades system. The, that that whole southern part of Florida, be, be underneath that giant lake that you can see on on any map of Florida. So that's how it worked naturally, and you can understand how it would just feed and nurture that whole system that then would flow into Everglades National Park and eventually into Florida Bay at the southern tip of Florida. 
<clears throat> what happened there was they started to reclaim some some land south of the lake for um, for agriculture for other purposes and then all of a sudden there was flooding and then tons of houses were ruined and people died so then they did this incredible engineering feat with this lake to then send water east and west instead of south which you know saved those towns but all of a sudden started triggering these these really negative effects that have led to uh, everything you, you you see on the internet through pictures, um, you know, on newspapers of of the algae blooms and just the, you're, you're you're changing this again this incredibly huge ecosystem to do something that it's it's not supposed to do, um, and so basically that sort of has has choked out um, the, the the biodiversity in the ecosystem south of Florida and therefore has impacted Florida Bay, which is on the southern tip, which the salinity levels in Florida Bay have just gotten so out of whack because it's not getting the fresh water and you're having turtle grass die off, which is then impact, impacting all these species. And so I'm, I'm sure the way I described it is somewhat confusing. It's so much easier to look at a map and you can just see how there are all these different pieces that are connected. And if and when each piece is thrown off the way it has been at different times throughout history, you can see how it just impacts just such a giant piece of land that that is important for for so many reasons well it's been a, just a pleasure you know listening to you talk about it and share this with us and we'll definitely put a link to the film follow the water which is a a really neat short documentary that takes you through the whole process and shows you how special this place is so thank you for joining us and and sharing your passion for the everglades and the restoration with us yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always it's always fun to talk about, and so I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks again to our guests, scientist, explorer, and author Claire Fiesler, and bioengineer Kakani Khadija. Claire's book containing the profile of Kakani titled No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice is available from most major booksellers. And you can learn more about Kakani's work at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute at mbari.org. And thanks to Orvis President Simon Perkins. You can watch the Orvis production about the Everglades restoration titled Follow the Water at orvis.com slash follow the water. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at blue.nspr. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schloem, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.